Good morning to you. You ready to get into God's Word this morning? Before we do that, let me just, I'm going to share something with you. I wasn't in, intending to share this uh, until we were singing that last song. And I, I just was overwhelmed. So appreciative of these folks, by the way, and the way they lead us each and every week in our worship ministry. Um, but it hit me, you know, we're, we're, we, we have the holiday coming up, our, our nation's birthday, and uh, the next couple of days people will be celebrating. Uh, most of us will be enjoying it. My poor dog is already going into shock from all the fireworks um, and his anxiety. But I, I, was, I was just overwhelmed as we were singing and the fact that we're able to sing and to do so without fear of reprisal. This morning I received a text, uh, a message that comes from a friend of mine. You, you've heard him preach before, Kevin Smith. Uh, preached here last year, and he made this statement in a text. He said, today we get to preach like free men in free pulpits, in free churches, in a free country. What an honor and a blessing. Many around the world and throughout church history would love that opportunity, and we have it every week of our lives. Isn't that a powerful thought? There are people in this world today who are as, as much in love with Jesus as you are, but they do, ha do not have the freedom that we have to, to gather and to publicly open up the doors, throw up the doors, and to publicly proclaim that there is but one way of salvation because there is one God and His name is Jesus. And we get to praise Him week in and week out, and that is something we ought to appreciate, but also we ought to take advantage of every opportunity we get. Amen? Amen. Well... Uh, as a free man in a free pulpit, in a free church, in a free country, I get to preach the Word of God to you today, and I, I consider that a privilege. So why don't you open up your Bibles? We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 today. We are marching through our study of 1 Thessalonians, and we come to the last chapter beginning today. This past Wednesday, a rare event took place when New York pitcher Domingo Herman pitched a perfect game. If you're not much on, up on baseball, if you don't know what a big deal that is, uh, to pitch a perfect game means you face 27 batters in nine innings and not one of them make it to base. No errors, uh, no hits, obviously no runs, and it's a very, very difficult thing to accomplish as a pitcher. In fact, the last time that it happened in Major League Baseball was in 2012, it's been estimated that since the beginning of, of Major League Baseball, since its, its beginnings over 150 years ago, there's been about 220,000 games played in the history of Major League Baseball, but there's only been 24 perfect games pitched. And so to watch one is a very rare thing. To watch one in person is even rarer. And I had an opportunity to do that. Hold on. I was a student in Texas at, in Fort Worth at Southwestern Seminary in the mid-90s, and uh, it was my first year of seminary there. We discovered that uh, if you were an out-of-town uh, visitor, if you lived within uh, or outside of 150 miles of Six Flags of Texas, you could get a ticket, a season pass for $50. So there were a lot of us students at Southwestern Seminary were very poor, but we scraped together enough money to put down $50 on a season pass, and it gave us a, a cheap way to have fun one, one night or, or, or two a week. And so every Tuesday night, there was a group of us, we sort of had a group date. Every Tuesday night, we would go to the, 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 the local Six Flags and just ha have fun in the evening. 
Well, we showed up on one Tuesday evening, and unbeknownst to us, there was a, a, something in the schedule at Six Flags. They shut down the park early that day, and we drive up and find the parking lot empty. Well, sitting right next door to Six Flags of Texas is the ballpark at Arlington, what it was back then, the, the home of the Texas Rangers baseball team. And this was all pre-9-11 days, uh, and, and, which was a, a blessing in and of itself, in that after six and a half innings of baseball play in those days, the, the security guards would actually leave the, the entrances of the ballpark, and you could walk in for free and watch the last third of a baseball game uh, without paying a dime. And so we were standing in the parking lot of Six Flags trying to decide what we want to do, and somebody said, well, let's go over to the baseball game and watch the Rangers play. We believe they're, they're playing. And we debated it uh, for a few moments, and I was all for it. But the guy who was driving that night says, you know, I'd rather really just go back to, to the seminary. And so we got in the car and we drove back the 30 minutes back to the seminary. And uh, we walked into the men's dorm and noticed immediately something unusual was happening because all of these single seminarians that were living in the dorm had gathered around the large TV in the entranceway and they were all watching a baseball game. We soon found out the reason why, and that was because Kenny Rogers, the, the pitcher, not the, the country singer, was, was nearing the completion of a perfect game being pitched in Arlington, Texas, just a few minutes away from us, and uh, we didn't go in and watch. We were almost there. He did throw that perfect game. I, I almost saw it. I could have experienced it firsthand, but I missed out. Let me say this in light of that, that experience of myself. Almost experiencing a rare event is not the same as experiencing the rare event, Right? And I'm here to tell you, church, as a, procla a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a preacher of his word, a rare event is coming. It's the rarest event, the rarest of all, and it's this. One day, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. The Bible describes it as coming very soon. That is, that his return is imminent. But Jesus is coming back but not everyone is going to experience the joy of it. Some are going to miss out. And for those who do, the consequences of missing out will be weighty. But here's my prayer for you, and it's, I believe it's Paul's prayer for you. It's this, that you won't miss out, that you will know it's coming, that his return is imminent, and that you will be ready for that day. In fact, that is the topic of our message today, the return of Jesus. And we're going to see it described and proclaimed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So why don't you stand with me as we often do, as we recognize what a privilege and an honor it is to stand and to, to read and to proclaim the good news of Christ. Let's read his word and hear about the day of the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Thessalonians. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, 
but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk or get drunk at night, there are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. As we have seen throughout the study of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to a group of Christians, uh, the Thessalonians, these believers, but he's also, I believe, now writing to us that we ought to stand firm. And this is especially pertinent in light of his imminent return. Let's pray together. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon its pro- the proclamation of His Word, and let us express our appreciation for it. Lord, we deeply thank You for Your Word. You have revealed Yourself to us in the flesh, and You continue to reveal Yourself in holy writ. Thank You for Your Word, Lord. Thank You for the privilege that we have to stand here, to proclaim it, to hear it, to study it, and to do it without reprisal. Lord, we are grateful for the freedom that we have in this nation, but let us not take it for granted. As we proclaim it, let us also hear it and heed it and live it out to the glory of God. Lord, knowing that you are coming, you're going to come back, and it could even happen in our lifetime. May we be ready, and may we live as if this is a reality that will come true very soon. So we ask it, Lord. We pray it in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you. Go ahead and have a seat. I'm fairly certain I've, I've shared with you a recurring nightmare that I have. It's a nightmare that's rooted in reality, but the, the, if, if I, I don't have a lot of nightmares. I, I'm not that kind of person, but occasionally, I'll, for one reason or another, I'll have this nightmare pop into my brain while I'm sleeping, and it's this, that I show up for my last ever college class and I'm about to, to wrap things up, about to graduate, but the professor calls me forward at the end of the class to inform me that I'm missing an assignment for this class, and this class is necessary, uh, th- that I need this assignment to pass the class, and that the class is necessary in order for me to, to graduate. And so if I don't complete the assignment, I don't, com- I don't pass the class, if I don't pass the class, i got to repeat the, the class all over and, and spend another semester in college. And so I say that this nightmare that I have, and I'll sometimes fret over it. Anybody else have that kind of, of nightmare like that? Or is it just me? All right. I say that it's rooted in reality because it's rooted in reality. When I was in college, I, I, my degree, my four-year degree is in communication arts, and there was a core class, a core prerequisite uh, that was called mass communications. And I took the class one semester, and because of starting in a ministry role uh, at a church, and I was very busy, ended up withdrawing from that class uh, part of the way through that that semester and picked it up another semester. And so I had a lot of notes from the first half of the class, was taking the same professor, had a lot of notes, so I felt like, you know, I would go to class, but if I had to miss a class, it wasn't a big deal. It was a big deal. Because on that particular, uh, on one particular time in a second semester retaking this class, I missed a particular class in which the professor had added an assignment that wasn't included in the previous uh, iteration of this class. 
And he had broken up the class in, into groups, and the groups were going to put together some presentations that they would present at the end of the semester, and it was a key part of the final grade. So all of us were assigned to a group. I was actually assigned. The problem was I had no idea about it until one week before the presentation. And my fellow group uh, participants, who I guess didn't like me, did not inform me that I was in their group, and they went ahead and planned things. And it took a lot of begging and pleading before my group uh, finally and reluctantly allowed me to participate. See, I almost failed that class because I had no idea that there was an assignment coming. I almost failed it because I hadn't done what was expected of me, and basically I wasn't ready. Our passage today is all about being ready, about being prepared, and not just for some minor class assignment. It's about being ready for the most important event of all, the most important event since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that's his return. Because Jesus is coming back one day. It may very well be soon, but are you and are we ready for it? You see, before Paul moves to the conclusion of his letter, and it's coming the next couple of weeks, we'll examine it. Paul wants us to understand the reality of Christ's return, that it is going to happen. And because of that, he's concerned that we would be ready and that we live accordingly. And so he's going to give to us some, some expressions of ways in which we can be ready for the return of Jesus. And I'm going to share these with you. And he begins with the reality of Jesus' return. It's the very first point I want to share with you. And he gives us a warning. So here's the first point. In light of the return of Jesus, we need to be forewarned. You see, Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back in an unexpected time. And when he does, it's going to be a time either for judgment or for salvation. Paul says in verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. And then he says in verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul introduces a couple of concepts, actually one concept with two different phrases. He talks about times and seasons, and he mentions the day of the Lord. But both of these are talking about and pointing to the same event, which is the return of Jesus. And how all that's going to play out and what happens to Christians then, it's really a, a big matter of debate. And I'm sure that some of you have spent a lot of time studying this. It's quite likely there may be a person or two who spend far more time studying this than even I have. There's a lot of debate surrounding when Jesus is showing up and the manner in which he shows up and, and what's going to happen related to it. Revelation chapter 20 describes what is known as the millennial or a thousand year reign of Jesus. And there are a lot of questions surrounding that such as is this a literal 1,000 years reign of Jesus or is it figurative? Some say it's figurative and, and that we're actually living uh, in the reign of uh, the millennial reign of Jesus now that he is uh, uh, allowing the gospel to pro be proclaimed. Others believe, no, that is an actual literal th a thousand years, and that's some point in the future. Jesus is going to come back, and then the reign of Christ will come. Other questions such as, does Jesus come back before or after the millennium? Some hold that the gospel is going to be, keep being spread and spread, and that more and more people are going to come to know Jesus so that the world begin, be, begins to be populated with Christians to such a degree that it ushers in the millennial reign of Christ, and then Jesus will come back. Others hold that Jesus will come back, and only then will the millennium be begin. And you may have a particular viewpoint. I will tell you, I see varied viewpoints even among Baptist scholars. 
Each of these positions have been held by scholarly and godly people. And, and I will tell you, if you want to know what my position is, I'm with Jesus, whatever he thinks it's going to be, right? Listen, one day we're going to discover which position was right. And I encourage you to study, do, do so. But as you study, and let me give you the, this uh, piece of advice to consider as you're thinking through a position to hold. One, be prayerful. With that, I would say give a fair, uh, a fair shake at every position. You may have been raised with one position, and you need to listen and, and pay attention and listen to, to eat all sides. But whatever you do, approach it with a lot of humility. A lot of humility. Don't be combative. Don't look down upon those who have a differing viewpoint of you. And in the end, when Jesus comes back and you discover that the position you held were wrong, just roll with what happens, all right? It's going to be okay. Jesus has got this. Listen, we, we cannot let this subject be a point of contention. It's not about fighting over it. I mean, Paul's here, words here are not to, intended to be fighting words. They were meant to be words of encouragement, words of pastoral comfort. He's writing to a group of people who had a lot of bad things happening to them, and he wanted them to know that in the end, Jesus has it. He's got it worked out, but they, that they also be ready for it, at least those who are right with the Lord. So one thing that all these positions are, and I, I didn't go into the weeds of, of all these positions and giving the names to them, but one thing that they all have in common is this. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And when he does, he's going to come back as judge. And for those who are lost in their sins, they're going to face the judgment of God because of their sins. In fact, look at verse 3. Paul writes, While people are saying there is peace and security, it's then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. This uh, apocalyptic language is found elsewhere in Scripture. For instance, we see similar language of, about the day of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 and following. Let me just read it to you. Wait, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. That's not the typical picture of Jesus and His coming that we're used to, right? We often think of and prefer the Jesus who comes across in niceties. That he's kind and gentle and loving and sacrificial, which all of these things are true, but never negate the fact or diminish the fact <clears throat> that Jesus is also just because he is holy and righteous God. Because when he comes back, he's going to come back as that holy and righteous God who comes to judge. And if you've ever lived your life as if you did not need God, as if you did not need Jesus, if you've lived for yourself, for what you want and not what He wants, if you've put yourself above God, then friend, you are a sinner in rebellion against God, and your sins will have consequence. You will face judgment for your sin. And all of those descriptors that I've just read from Isaiah chapter 13, you're going to experience all of that and more. Because the Lord will come, and when He does, He will be cruel to you. His wrath, His fierce anger will burn against you. You will grow weak. 
your heart will melt, you will experience pain, you will experience agony, for destruction will come upon you. And it won't be because he's a mean God. It's because he's holy, and he is righteous, and he is just, and his holiness will burn against your rebellious sin. And the price that you pay on that day will be your fault, not his. See, Paul says that that day will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. In other words, we won't see it coming. If we knew that a thief was going to show up at our house tonight, we'd be there watching and waiting. But Paul says, no, when Jesus returns, no, you won't be waiting. People will, will, will not see it coming. It's coming like a thief in the night. And they'll think, well, all is good. Everything is peaceful. Everything is secure. And when they're in that place as if nothing bad is going to happen, it's then that destruction, the sudden destruction will come upon them when they least expect it. And as Paul describes here, his judgment will come by, like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. It will come, and when it starts to come, it will be inevitable. You know, each of the, the births of our three children had a little bit of drama. Uh, when, when Leah Lee was singing here on stage today, you know, we joked when, when, when Jennifer was pregnant with Leah, uh, I was pastoring a small church in western Kentucky, we joked that uh, I would be preaching, and while I was preaching is when she would go into labor. Uh, and guess what happened? I was preaching, and she went into labor. Uh, following the service, we, we had an invitation. In fact, Jennifer was a small church. Jennifer was helping someone who had joined the church today fill out some paperwork. I was in the back as people were walking out the, 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 the back door of the church, shaking hands. And the last guy to come through was our church treasurer. And he said, hey, you need to check on your wife. She's about to have a baby. <laughs> All right. She was not that close, but she did begin her, her contractions then. Labor came so quickly with our second child, Ethan. If you know Ethan, he's always going someplace fast. It, it happened so fast, Jennifer didn't even have time to have an epidural. So she delivered the, 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 the baby uh, naturally. Um, and then with, with Meredith, the baby, uh, labor started on the night of Easter. I'd preached that morning. We had two services. Uh, I was up, I sort of wired after all of that up a little bit later. And uh, I was about ready for bed. I, was, I think it was just past midnight. I was getting ready to go to bed. And uh, I, I hear Jennifer calling for me. I go in, into the bedroom, and she says, I think I've started contractions. So really, yeah, how far are they apart? They're three minutes apart. <laughs> Let me tell you why that's even a bigger deal. Uh, our doctor had changed, or uh, 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 the, the, the labor and delivery doctor had changed, and we now had a doctor who was practicing an hour from where we were delivering the baby. My mother, who many of you know, she's a retired RN. She was still working in those days. Uh, she was at the house because we knew that, you know, the baby was coming soon. And uh, we start to scramble, putting things together, you know. And my mom starts putting together a kit. And she's like, look, if the baby comes while you were going to the, this is why. I was like, no, 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 no. There are no babies being born on the side of the road, right? And that's why I drove 90 miles an hour. I'm not ashamed to say it. We drove 90 miles an hour to get to the hospital. Here's the thing. This is how the day of the Lord will come. It will come like labor pains coming from a pregnant woman. It will come suddenly, unexpectedly. And when it begins, there is absolutely nothing you can do to stop it. And if you're lost in your sin, friend, know this, that it will be a day of judgment for you. But it's not a judgment for everyone. Paul reminds us that some will actually be saved on that day. Notice verse 4. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, 
So he's speaking not to the lost, not to those without Jesus, but to those who know him. You're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. This lets us know that the second coming of Christ isn't just a day of judgment. It may also be a day of salvation. There'll be some of us where that, that's, that, that day is not going to take us by surprise. Now, that doesn't mean that we actually know when Jesus is coming back. And listen, we know throughout history there have been groups of people, individuals who rise up, who had lots of predictions about Jesus' return. Well, in my first year of college, I remember a book being written by a man by the name of uh, Edgar Wisenant. Uh, he was actually a NASA engineer, former NASA engineer, loved the Lord, loved the Bible, and he had done this deep dive into prophecy, and he, he wrote a little bit of a booklet uh, that, that called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And so I, this is early 1988, this book came out. I actually worked at a Christian bookstore that was selling this thing like hotcakes. The amount of people who would come in getting this book, and, and they were wanting to know, is Jesus coming back? I remember it freaking out a lot of people. And just so you know, Edgar Wisenant and no one else was raptured that year. No one was taken up to be with the Lord, neither, no one else. And he wasn't the first nor the last who predicted a date and were wrong about it. So what is Paul's point when he says to you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that that day, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, that that day won't surprise us like a thief? What he's saying to us in reminding us that salvation is available for those who are ready for that day. You may not know the day nor the hour. In fact, Jesus himself described it this way. Matthew chapter 24, if you're taking notes, beginning in verse 36, a little lengthy passage. Just let me read it to you. Jesus says this, Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And Jesus said they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master had of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus tells you and me, listen, I'm not going to tell you. You're not going to know the exact hour and day in which I return. Judgment day is coming, and with it will come destruction, but not for those who are ready for it. For those who are ready, they will be saved. The question then for us, for me and for you, is are we ready? Are we ready for the return of Christ? And as we'll see shortly, there's only one way to be truly ready, and that is to surrender your life to Jesus. Now, for those who are ready, there's something else for us to do in light of the return of Jesus, to be ready for it, and that's the second truth, and that is to be set apart and to live your life that way. You know, most people live their lives for the moment. You know, they're the ones that are thinking, everything's good, there's peace, there's security, I don't have much to worry about the future. I'm just not going to think about those kind of things. But friend, as a believer in Jesus Christ, especially in light of the words of Jesus and the words of Paul, we should be mindful of the future. It is coming. And if we were mindful of the future, it would certainly impact how we live in the present. I want you to look at verse 5 again, uh, again of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5. He says, For you are all children of light 
children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul here is describing two groups of people, and it's two groups of people, as we shall see, will have two different destinies. But the two groups of people are the children of light versus the children of darkness, the children of day versus the children of the night. The children of day, they're, they're distinct from the children of night, the night. They're not the same type of people. The children of the day, they will be saved by Jesus. The children of night, they're going to face his judgment. They're going to face his wrath. Children of light, by the way, may externally, physically look like the children of the, the darkness because we're all human after all, but we are distinctly different. We're spiritually different. Those who have trusted Christ, those who have been saved by Jesus, we've been set apart by Christ. We were once in the darkness, but now he's brought us into the light. As Jesus said in, in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you know Jesus, you have the light of life. And so who we are as the children of light ought to have a huge impact upon how we're living our lives today. And it's if we have the light of Christ, we're not the ones walking in darkness. And so our behavior ought to reflect that the, the, the behavior of someone who's walking in the light, not of the darkness. In fact, Look further here in chapter 5. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here's the implication. If we are children of light, here then is how we should behave. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. And so Paul's saying, look, remember, you are not in the darkness. You're not of the darkness. You are of the light. And you, you know that Jesus is coming back. I've already told you that, right? And I didn't need, you didn't need me to write to you about this, though I went ahead and wrote to you anyway. You didn't need me to write to you about this. That's why we need to, to keep awake and to be sober. This idea of keeping awake, it basically means to be watchful, to be alert, to be sober. Yes, it, it can very clearly mean that we're not to, to, to be under the influence of a substance, but can also uh, point to how we perceive things and how we understand things. It's about being under control and having the capacity to control one's behavior, but it also impacts how we think and how we see things. And so what Paul is getting to here when he talks about us keeping awake and being sober is he's talking about our perception how we view things, and, and then, therefore how we should live. And as children of the day, as children of light, we are aware of the imminent return of Jesus Christ one day. And knowing that, knowing that we are also set apart uh, because of our faith in Jesus, we ought to live now, lives set apart, knowing that Jesus is coming back. So live as set apart people. In other words, Christian process these questions. Do you have your eyes fixed on the moment, on your momentary trials and tribulations, or do you have your sight set on eternity? Where, where is your view? Are we awake and sober-minded? Are we aware and ready for the return of Jesus? Or are we asleep with no thoughts on his return? Whether we're thinking about it or not, Jesus is coming back. Christian, be set apart and live set apart. In fact, Paul goes even further in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So not only are we to be keep awake and to be sober, we're to put on faith and love and hope. We're to clothe ourselves in these three things. Knowing Jesus is coming back, this is how we should be living our lives with faith, hope, and love. To put, put on faith means to live uh, with a reliance upon God. 
We're, we're trusting in God more than ourselves. We trust Him more than me. To, to put on and clothe ourselves in loves, love means that our, we set our affections uh, upon the things of God so that our affections are the things that He is affectionate about. We love the things that He loves rather than what we want to love. And to have the hope of salvation, that basically means that we have the confidence that not only has Jesus forgiven us of our sins, but we also believe that He's coming back one day. And when He does, He's going to right all the wrong in this world, and we will then be with Him forever and ever and ever. That is our hope. And if we truly believe that He's coming back, how we live our lives ought to reflect that belief if we actually believe it. We won't be like those without Christ. We won't be like those who are living in darkness because we're not like them. We're set apart. And so we should be set apart in how we perceive things, how we see things, how we see the return of Jesus, but also in how we live. And it really puts it down to a big choice for you and I. Will we live for the moment or will we live for the return of Christ as if Jesus could come back at any moment? Now listen, I want to be very clear here. Because being ready for the return of Jesus really isn't about what you do, but what Jesus has done for you upon the cross. The only way to really be ready is to be right with Him through salvation in Him. In fact, if you want to be ready for the return of Jesus, here's the third and final point, and it's simply this, be saved. That's it. If you want to be ready for Jesus' return, if you want to make sure that you're not facing His judgment, but that you're experiencing His, His eternal salvation, be saved. Trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. What Paul is depicting here is that there are really only two destinies. Just as there are really only two types of people, children of day or light versus children of darkness or night, there are only two destinies for them. One for the children of night and one for the children of day. The children of darkness, those who are outside of Jesus, they are destined for wrath. What will it be like for them to be destined for wrath? Well, let me let Jesus speak again. Jesus describes it this way in Matthew chapter 13, verse 41. He says, The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. A little bit later, He says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Anybody encouraged by those words? Anybody feeling warm and fuzzy about those words? You may be thinking, you know, that's harsh. If that's what God's wrath is, wrath isn't something that a loving God should have. Never forget that we are also talking about God who is just. He must respond this way ultimately to sin. But here's the good news. The good news is that God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus. It's been satisfied uh, in the person of Christ when He took upon our, uh, His person our sins. Jesus poured His wrath upon Himself, the wrath that we deserve. He poured it upon Himself and he, when He died to pay the penalty of our sin. That means that Jesus' wrath, God's wrath, doesn't have to be your destiny or mine. There is another option, and that is the destiny of those who are in the light. 
that those who are the children of light are those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. And as Paul says here, Paul says they've obtained salvation through Jesus. They have it. It's theirs. And this Jesus who died for us, whether we are awake or asleep, that is, whether we are alive when he comes back on that day or whether we have already died, because of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, we now have the ability to say our destiny is one day we will live with him, which means we'll live with him in paradise forever. That's it. Those are the two options, the two destinies. It's either one or the other. You are either in or you are out. There is no third option. Jesus is coming back, but where are you going to go when he comes? Are you ready? Will it be a destiny of wrath, or, or have you already obtained salvation in Jesus, which means when he returns, it won't be a bad day, it'll be a glorious day, and you get to be with him forever and ever. The only way to be ready is through Jesus Christ. When I was a, a child, a young child in the, in the 70s, I remember going to um, the student pastor's house with my parents to preview a, a movie that was circulating in those days. They were going to show it to our student ministry, and I went with my parents to watch this movie. I think it was made around 1972, so this movie is over 50 years old. It was a movie called A Thief in the Night. Um, I'm seeing a few of you nodding your head, but I can also tell you're my age or older if you know what I'm talking about. Most people don't know the movie but basically, it was the first movie to ever depict a particular perspective on what it would be like for Jesus to return uh, and for some to be saved and some to, to face uh, destruction. Uh, it's been known to be the inspiration to the Left Behind series, but I will tell you, that movie, when I watched it as a little boy, I was probably in elementary school when it happened, it frightened the daylights out of me. And I was a Christian in those days, but it, it scared the living daylights out of me. And so listen, I, I, I bring that up to you to say this, that the point of, of teaching and preaching about the return of Jesus, Christian, the point of it here is not to frighten you. That, that's, that's not the point. It's to be an encouragement. In fact, Paul concludes with these words in verse 11. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The idea, the concept, the, the, the truth, the fact that Jesus is coming back, Christian, his return and his, his imminent return should encourage you, not frighten you. He's coming back, and that's going to be a good day. Just make sure that you know Jesus and that you're living life like it's going to happen. But if you do not know Jesus, yeah, let it frighten you. Let his return frighten you. Let this message serve as a warning to you, because if he returns and you're not ready, your destiny is that of wrath. Here's the better option. Follow Jesus. Trust Jesus while you may. Re recognize that he is the God of creation. He is the one who also offers salvation. And that there is nothing you can do to make things right between you and him. His righteous and just wrath that burns against sin doesn't have to burn against you. If. You've surrendered your all to him by faith, trusting him, repenting of your sins and turning to him because the wrath that you deserve was placed upon Jesus on the cross a long time ago. Friend, turn to Jesus while you may. That's the best option. I pray it's the only option you choose.
trust Jesus today. In just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity for you to respond. And I'm going to have a word of prayer. We're going to sing a song and have some closing comments. But then there's going to be an opportunity when you have to decide what are you going to do with the rest of your life. Many of us will gather our, our, our Bibles, our purposes, our, our personal belongings and have a few pleasantries and we'll go on our way. But some of you need to see this as a decision moment. A moment in which you say, Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I know that no one receives salvation automatically, Lord. So I'm asking you to forgive me, Lord. To forgive me of my sin. I'm sorry that I've lived a rebellious life, Lord. I surrender my all to you. My life is now yours. I want to spend eternity with you, not separated from you. I want to enjoy the day of your return, not dread it. And so if that is you, if you want to know Jesus and trust him today, let me encourage you before you leave to make this decision to go to this cross over to my right. We've already heard it. Someone last Sunday uh, received Christ having approached a pastor. There'll be another pastor there today. And if you're here today, maybe even last week, the, the weight of the message of last week fell upon you and you didn't respond. Friend, I promise you, Jesus is coming back at a time you and I don't know. Maybe today is the day that you trust him and to be ready for sure. Let this day be the day you respond. So after we said the last amen, let me encourage you to go speak with a pastor about how you can know for certain that Jesus is your Lord and that you will spend forever with him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. I know these last couple of messages have been heavy. Anytime we talk about your return and the consequences of sin, and we get to the heart of your plan in, in establishing your kingdom forevermore, the Lord, it, it can be troublesome to some. And Lord, I pray for our, 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 our Christians here today that they would be indeed encouraged here, not discouraged by the, by the reality of your return, but also, Lord, that you would encourage them and inspire them to live as if that future is soon. And with that, Lord, may we be free with the gospel and sharing the good news of Christ with our family, our loved ones, our friends. But Lord, I also pray for those who are with us today that do not have the hope of what is to come. Lord, I want them to have that hope. I don't want them to be frightened. I want them to find encouragement. I want them to, to know uh, that the, their future can be secured forevermore in a very good way. And so, Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit of God bring conviction upon them, even as I've been preaching and now as I pray, that today be the day that they have faith in you and repent of their sins and turning to you. And Lord, give them the encouragement to respond as we conclude this service, we pray. We, may it so be, we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.